O Lord, how manifold are thy works, and wisdom hast thou made them all. The earth is full of thy riches. So is this great and wide sea, wherein are things creeping innumerable, both small and great beasts. There go the ships. There is that Leviathan, whom thou hast made to play therein. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 130. What is the Leviathan? I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. In his memoir, former Israeli Chief Rabbi Yisrael Meir Lau describes visiting injured soldiers in the hospital during the Yom Kippur War. He was brought to one badly wounded young man who was desperate to know whether he could still put on the tefillin shalyad, the tefillin phylactery, of the arm, if his head was bandaged and he was therefore unable to also put on the shalrosh, the tefillin placed on the head. The answer, of course, is yes, and Rabbi Lau was obviously intrigued by the urgency of the question, and so the rabbi engaged the young officer, a second lieutenant by the name of Yehuda. Yehuda had grown up in Israel without true observance of Judaism, and he found himself in the midst of the holiday of Sukkot, a week and a half after the breakout of the war, in action in the Suez region. He was sitting in a command car when suddenly a group of Chabad Hasidim pulled up with a sukkah on the back of a truck and pressured Yehuda to enter this religious structure and take the lulav, the palm frond, in his hand. Rabbi Lau writes, quote, the officers tried to avoid the request, explaining that even in civilian life they did not observe the laws of Sukkot, and were even less inclined to do so now in the middle of such a war. But the Chabadnik on the truck did not give up and tried to convince them, arguing, what do you care? At any rate, you're just sitting here doing nothing. Come up, the whole thing will take you no more than ten minutes, he said, pressuring them. The officers looked at each other and decided to accept his offer. They went into the truck, partook of pieces of cake and small cups of sweet wine, and prepared to recite the blessing over the lulav. Suddenly, they heard a deafening explosion. They all threw themselves onto the floor of the truck, feeling their bodies to make sure all their limbs were intact. When they glanced outside, they discovered that the command car where they had been sitting a minute ago had taken a direct hit. Not a fragment of it remained. When quiet reigned once more, Second Lieutenant Yehuda said to one of the Chabad men, you would probably call what happened here a miracle. The Chabad men answered him with a question. What would you call it? Yehuda felt that his life had been saved thanks to the sukkah and the lulav. He gave the man a long stare, then pointed upward and said, I feel I owe him something in exchange for my life. My life was saved because you insisted we get into your truck and recite the blessings. The Chabad man proposed that he take upon himself the daily mitzvah of laying tefillin. Yehuda agreed. End quote. This was the soldier who, after experiencing terrible injury, posed to the rabbi in the hospital the first question that occurred to him, whether he could place tefillin on his hand in fulfillment of what he had taken upon himself, a soldier who had found faith on Sukkot in a sukkah. When we study this story, we realize that it is about more than a miracle that took place for one soldier in one holy hut in the middle of a war. We must, I think, understand the psychology of the soldiers at this particular time. After the Six-Day War, a sense of impregnability and confidence may have settled upon some citizens of Israel confidence that was suddenly shattered by the sudden attack on Yom Kippur. Now suddenly there they were, fighting not only for their lives, but for the very survival of the state. And suddenly there was a sukkah, a ramshackle structure that offered no physical protection, that was not impregnable at all, and yet which embodied the utter necessity of the providential protection of God. It was this symbolism that the soldier embraced, and that is why his first thought when he came to in the hospital was his connection to God. This, then, is what the Sukkah represents, what Sukkot as a holiday represents. And understanding this allows us to reveal the true meaning 
of one of the most enigmatic Sukkot statements in the Talmud, and how it is, at least in part, inspired by a passage in Isaiah. As part of his predictions about the end of days, Isaiah suddenly invokes a word, a name, a noun, but his ultimate intent is, at least initially, unclear to the reader. Chapter 27, verse 1. In that day the Lord, with his sore and great and strong sword, shall punish Leviathan, the piercing serpent, even Leviathan, the crooked serpent, and he shall slay the dragon that is in the sea. What is the Leviathan? What is this great serpent? What does it mean that God will slay it? The reference here seems to be a large creature of the ocean. In general, the reference to these beings are invoked in the Bible to describe the wonders of God's creation, the omniscience of the Almighty through which the most incredible specimens of the sea were brought into being. Thus Psalms 104.24, O Lord, how manifold are thy works! In wisdom hast thou made them all. The earth is full of thy riches. So is this great and wide sea, wherein are things creeping innumerable, both small and great beasts. There go the ships. There is that Leviathan whom thou hast made to play therein. The Hebrew here in the Psalms is ambiguous. It is not initially clear whether the verse in Hebrew means God creates the Leviathan to play therein, in the sea, which is how the King James and other English translations render it, or whether God creates the Leviathan to play with it. For God does speak in Job 41 of playing with the Leviathan. The Almighty describes his own inscrutable might while speaking to Job. Verse 1. Canst thou draw out Leviathan with a hook, or his tongue with a cord which thou lettest down? Canst thou put a hook into his nose, or bore his jaw through with a thorn? Will he make many supplications unto thee? Will he speak soft words unto thee? Will he make a covenant with thee? Wilt thou take him for a servant forever? Wilt thou play with him as with a bird? Thus the Leviathan in general refers to a mighty sea creature, representing a sign of the wonders of nature. But what then does Isaiah mean? when he speaks of God in the end of days killing the Leviathan. If it is part of the wonders of nature, why should it be destroyed? As many medieval Jewish commentators explain, the reference here to the Leviathan is serving for Isaiah as a metaphor. The Leviathan is an embodiment of might, strength, power, and fearfulness. And it is just that that the empires throughout history emphasize. And it is to these empires that Isaiah, through the term Leviathan, refers. Rashi, Citing the earlier commentary known as the Targum of Jonathan, explains the references of Isaiah to the various forms of Leviathans as follows, and this is the Safaria translation of Rashi, quote, Jonathan renders on the king who aggrandized himself like Pharaoh the first king, and upon a king who was as haughty as Sancherev the second king, end quote. In other words, Isaiah is speaking of the tyrants, the empires, the powerful kings, the pharaohs and Assyrian emperors that bestrode the world like a colossus that assaulted, imprisoned, tortured, and attacked Israel. Thus, Isaiah goes on to describe these powers being punished for all they inflicted upon his people. Isaiah goes on to depict God's future actions against the Leviathan that is the tyrant that attacked Israel. Verse 7, Hath he smitten him as he smote those that smote him? Or is he slain according to the slaughter of them that are slain by him? The Leviathan then, in its might and strength, becomes an embodiment of imperial tyranny. To us, to human beings, a massive sea creature may appear invincible, but to God it is a mere plaything. Hooking it is impossible for us, but a matter of no effort for the Almighty. To speak of the destruction of the Leviathan is for Isaiah to promise, at a time when Israel faces a threat from a seemingly invincible Assyrian army, that one day not only will the might of Assyria be ended, but ultimately that all tyrannies will fall, and all the rulers that abuse their power, that thought themselves to be omnipotent, 
will be revealed to be nothing more than a floundering fish in the sea of history that God created. We are now able to understand a seemingly strange statement in the Talmud. Atid HaKadosh Baruch Hu La'asot Sukkah Me'orosh Alivyatan. In the future, say the rabbis, God will construct a sukkah, a holy hut, a tiny tabernacle, a beloved booth for the holiday, from the skin of the defeated Leviathan. This statement is perhaps like Isaiah speaking in metaphor, and it is, I think, inspired by Isaiah's prophecy here. The Talmud is speaking of the age predicted in Isaiah, and it is saying that in the end of days, the Leviathans of the world will be destroyed, and everyone will see God's hand in history. In the end of days, tyrannies will be revealed to be powerless before providence. In the end of days, the reliance on God that the Sukkah symbolizes will be acclaimed, embraced by all. And if the Talmud chooses to stress Sukkot as a theme linked to the defeat of the Leviathans of history, it is perhaps because Sukkot was a harvest festival, and Isaiah follows up his description of the end of the Leviathan with a description in verse 6 of the flourishing, not only of the land of Israel, but of all the earth. He shall cause them that come of Jacob to take root. Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. This teaching of the Talmud, superficially enigmatic, has inspired a prayer the Jews still pray on Sukkot today, asking that as we have eaten in our own Sukkah, so may we merit to enjoy the Sukkah of the Leviathan. And we can now understand the audacity, the profound power of this prayer. Think of, for example, a Jew in Tsarist Russia in the pale of persecution, sitting outside in his sukkah in the snow. To the sneering anti-Semite outside, the Jew's faith appears preposterous. The hut offers no protection at all, and the very state of Jews in the Tsar's empire highlights how powerless and persecuted they are. Yet the Jew in the sukkah proclaims his faith in God's love, in the perpetuation of Judaism, and in the ultimate revealing of God's hand in history. Now, ladies and gentlemen, imagine a Jew acting similarly in, say, the Roman Empire of Hadrian, when the emperor had expelled all Jews from Jerusalem and turned the sacred city into a center of paganism. These Jews still celebrate Sukkot and proclaim, as the sage Rabbi Akiva did, that one day the might of Rome would be in ruins, that Jewish grandparents and grandchildren would one day again dwell in Jerusalem, believing as well that there would be an age when the end of Isaiah's Leviathan prophecy would also be fulfilled, and this is the final verse in the chapter. And it shall come to pass in that day that a great shofar shall be blown, and they shall come which were ready to perish in the land of Assyria, and the outcasts in the land of Egypt, and shall worship the Lord in the holy mount at Jerusalem. The Sukkah of the Leviathan embodies an end to tyranny. And there's an irony here, because it is the political philosopher Thomas Hobbes who named his work Leviathan. This was his defense of political absolutism, of the total power of the government ideally for Hobbes, the monarch. Hobbes argued that only such a power can detain and prevent what he called the war of man against every man. In his words, quote, the multitude so united in one person is called the commonwealth, in Latin civitas. This is the generation of that great Leviathan, or rather to speak more reverently of that mortal God to which we owe under the immortal God, our peace and defense. For by this authority given him by every particular man in the commonwealth, he hath the use of so much power and strength conferred on him that by terror thereof he is enabled to perform the wills of them all to peace at home and mutual aid against their enemies abroad, End quote. Hobbes saw the Leviathan of the state as essential to preventing a state of war between human beings, and he called the Leviathan that was the absolutist state, the absolutist ruler, 
a mortal God. In contrast, Jews warn constantly that rulers which come close to being divinized will themselves be undone, and that while leaders are often called to lead and even rule righteously, they must always bear in mind the limits placed upon them by God and by the sanctity of the human beings over whom they exert authority. Otherwise, tyranny will result with rulers becoming drunk on their own power. Rulers like this will ultimately, the prophet proclaims, be undone. And Sukkot is meant to remind us to whom power truly belongs. On the website of the National Library of Israel, in a link that we have sent to you, one can find a page with remarkable photographs of soldiers in the Yom Kippur War with makeshift Sukkot on their vehicles as they travel into battle. As the website explains, these soldiers were, of course, told by the rabbinate that they were exempt from the obligations of Sukkah. And yet, as the site further tells us, quote, there were soldiers who nevertheless tried to observe the mitzvah of sitting in the sukkah, even at the front. What probably drove the battle-weary soldiers was their desire for even a little of the holiday atmosphere, a brief respite. A reporter for the Alamishmar newspaper who accompanied the soldiers in the difficult battles along the Suez Canal in the south reported in Hebrew, despite the bitter fighting, there is no forgetting that civilian life goes on. On the front line, we discovered an improvised sukkah, a half-track vehicle decorated with branches, completely kosher, end quote. And so, if you look at these photographs, you will see soldiers at war with makeshift Sukkot as they travel, Sukkot that physically offer no protection from the missiles that may fall, but nevertheless which embody the soldier's faith in God and the ability to feel the Almighty's presence. How inspiring are these Jews who, in the midst of their defending Israel and in the midst of the most dangerous moments of their lives, still ensconce themselves in a Sukkah, And it may be that in the merit of the Jewish ability to feel God's embrace in the sukkah, even in the most trying of times, the Jewish people will therefore ultimately experience what Isaiah predicts, the defeat of tyranny on earth, so that the Jews may please God soon celebrate in the sukkah of the Leviathan. This is Mayor Soloveitchik. Looking forward to learning together tomorrow. Signing off.